Welcome to the Canada's History Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Routh. August 19, 1942 remains perhaps the single worst day in Canadian military history. The raid on Dieppe by soldiers of the 2nd Canadian Division is one of the single most controversial events in Canadian history. Why was the raid even launched, and what were the main objectives? Was it simply a testing ground for a cross-channel raid by the Allies, or was there something more? Author and historian David O'Keefe has presented a new approach to looking at the Dieppe raid in his new book, One Day in August. The book looks at the role of British naval intelligence in the planning and execution of the raid and presents significant new evidence. Thanks so much for speaking with us, David. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, uh, David, your research into the Dieppe raid really began with a, a single page that referenced the Dieppe, ra- Dieppe raid in kind of an unlikely place, connecting the raid to a special intelligence unit. Can you tell us a bit about that document and, and what it was like when you found it? Well, that was a document that was released in 1995-1996 uh, at the Public Record Office, or what was known as the Public Record Office at the time in England, which is their British National Archives. And when I was over there doing some work on a completely unrelated matter, I decided to do some of my own work into Ultra, which is the code name that was given to the fruits of the code-breaking effort, the Allied code-breaking effort during the war. And that's when I discovered this particular document that had been written. Um, it was basically an in-house history, very short one about a unit called the 30th Assault Unit, which I had no clue existed. But this was a unit that was specifically raised to pinch or steal material that the cryptographers at Bletchley Park, which decoded the material, would need. And so as I was quickly flipping through, and I thought, okay, this is fascinating. In 1942, there was definitely this great blackout crisis in an uh, intelligence context, and I could see all the targets they were after. And then in the fourth paragraph, there was one line that really caught my attention. The party at Dieppe did not reach its objective. Now, I was absolutely stunned because here was the first time that I ever had a document in my hand that directly connected Ultra, one of the greatest secrets of the entire Second World War, with Canada's darkest day and one of our greatest mysteries. And that's how the journey began. And the research really centered around uh, a particular target in Dieppe, which was this Hotel Modern, which uh, the British Naval Intelligence suspected of being a, a German naval headquarters. That's correct. That's correct, but at the time, that document didn't reveal that. They were discussing in the document basically the general targets that they were after, the type of material. So it wasn't just a question of anything to do with this new four-rotor machine that the Germans had introduced, a four-rotor Enigma machine, which they used to encipher their, their codes or their messages, but also any of the ancillary documents that would help you actually work the machine. So this is, in general, what they were after. Now, I had no clue until many years later that, you know, that the Hotel Modern was their target and what would turn out to be one of the main targets, if not the main target, of the entire operation. Well, one, of the, one of the people that I find really sort of fascinating, I think, and obviously one of the central characters in this whole Dieppe raid is, is, is uh, John Hughes Hallett, who's the naval commander. And I think in large part, um, you know, he's sort of borne a, a fair amount of the um, the weight of historic, of history sort of around the raid itself. But I, I think in your interpretation, there's certainly a suggestion there that, that Hughes Hallett has never really told his full version of the story. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, one thing you have to realize that anything associated with Ultra was kept under wraps 
for many years, many decades after the war. It was only in the late 1970s when there was a hint of it. And then eventually, towards the end of the late 1970s, the British government eventually admitted that, yes, they had something. They were breaking into German, Japanese, and Italian codes, amongst others. And they had codenamed it by the end of the war, Ultra. So this was the big ultra secret. Now, the problem was that they didn't release any material associated with this in 1977, or whatever they did release was tiny, compared to what they started to release in 1995, which turned out to be millions of pages of material. So as a result, anybody like John Hughes Hallett or any of the other players that were around at that time, Dieppe, um, could not later on mention this or even hint at it in their memoirs because they were told under the Official Secrets Act that they would be prosecuted. And also they were told that the ultra secret secret would never be revealed. And of course, later on that, you know, that eventually leaked out. And then now we have a full body of evidence to work from. Hughes Hallett in particular is one of those ones that you, you feel has probably not told his full story. Oh, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, I would say that all of the major participants have, um, have, have been unable to in the past to tell the full story simply because of security implications at the time. And that's one of the great challenges for the historian now is to go back and not necessarily read between the lines, but superimpose the new evidence over the existing uh, corpus of material that's out there and then draw the conclusions from that. So, for instance, when you go back into Hughes Hallett's papers, his memoirs, which he penned uh, probably, I guess, a decade before the ultra-secret was revealed, you can start to see where he was avoiding. So, in other words, avoiding discussion of the importance of the HMS Locus. He doesn't even mention the intelligence assault unit, nor the real role of the commandos. And it would be the same thing, for instance, for the naval commander, or one of the naval commanders for the assault force, Red Rider, the Victoria Cross winner, the hero of St. Nazaire who took a lead role in the Dieppe operation, but because of the security involved with it, his role has basically just fallen through the cracks of history for many years. And one of the things that you, I think, had uncovered in your research as well that was probably one of the most sort of fascinating points was you actually found a member of this um, intelligence assault unit who is still alive who participated in the raid? Yes, he did. Yeah, Paul McGrath. As a matter of fact, that was fascinating because I had no idea that uh, anybody would still be left 70 years after, particularly, you know, given the, the casualties on that day. Um, but it, um, we were able to track him down, and then I flew up to Scotland to meet him. Now, one of the problems, of course, for the historian is many years later, memory is unfortunately rather fickle. And even if it's close to the date, it can be very difficult for specific items of evidence, or specific evidence, I should say. But one thing about Paul, when I met him, it was fascinating. He could really put you in the time, the mood, the spirit. And so as a result, he was able to tell us about the personalities involved with the unit. He was able to talk about, in general terms, what they were up to um, and what their specific mission was, not necessarily, well, in part on that day, but in general. So that was fascinating. But I think the the big discovery, the big piece of evidence, there was a whole series of them, um, but one of the big ones was the discovery of the Royal Marines' operational orders for Dieppe, which lays out exactly what they were up to in the harbor. 
one of the things that I, I've seen just around the book too, as well, is um, you know when I was doing research and I was reading the book and I was taking a look at some of the other reviews. Certainly, one of the things that is put out there by some of the other authors is that this is all too sort of too impossible to sort of dream up. It's too sort of James Bond. Uh, but it seemed to me as though in the book, in the first 200 pages, really the argument you're trying to make is that's the business that these guys were in. Yes, very much. I mean, one of the problems is, and one thing that you know we, you need to touch on immediately, is this commando unit was, was organized by Ian Fleming, and hence the James Bond connection. And um, Ian Fleming is a historical figure for historians like walking into a minefield because there has been so much written about Ian Fleming. Was he James Bond or, you know, or the opposite? Was he nothing more than simply a bureaucrat who sat in the office and dreamed of these incredible schemes? Well, that was my big mission was to tackle who the real Ian Fleming was in 1942. And I found out that he was nowhere near James Bond, but he was nowhere near the faceless bureaucrat either. He was extremely important in uh, British naval intelligence. As a matter of fact, he was the assistant to the director, John Godfrey, and Godfrey was grooming him to take over should anything happen to him. So as Godfrey said himself, Fleming knew everything and more than a little bit about everything. He had his finger in all the pies. But one of the reasons why Godfrey selected Fleming to be his assistant was because he was extremely Machiavellian in character, and he could come up with these kind of operations, these boys' own operations, if you will, which in the context of 1940 and 42, when Great Britain was desperate, were considered to be needed. And um, so that was one of the big things I had to get over, because, of course, anything that Fleming touches, one tends to immediately roll your eyes and say, okay... This is ludicrous. This is just James Bond. And that's one of the reasons why it took almost 18 years to put this story together, because I had to cull through 150,000 pages of material to get down to the answer, to find the solid historical facts and the evidence to be able to put this together. So where do you think the legacy of the Dieppe raid sort of goes from here, then? Well... In some cases, it doesn't change to a point in the sense that 907 Canadians died on that morning and nothing is going to change that. Dieppe was still a disaster, and there's no getting around that. What will change is our understanding of the intent. In other words, what was behind this from the start? And there's plenty of evidence to show that right from January of 1942, Dieppe was on the radar of British intelligence and, of course, later on, combined operations because, it was, because of what it had to offer from a cryptographic sense. So as a result, it gives us a, a different view completely when it comes to what was the driving force behind the operation. And once that's done, you sort of kick open the door to a whole new set of reassessments because now generations of historians have to go back and they have to take a look at their work again with this in mind and then be able to reassess. And really, I mean, I was asked once, is this the last word on Dieppe? And to be honest, I don't think so. I think this is, you know, this basically blows the door open to a complete reassessment. And so that's, um, that's one of the things that I'm very happy about with the research. I think one of the problems is, you know, when it comes to the other historians, 
Um, I have been on this trail for many, many years. And like I said, I've gone through 150,000 pages of material. So unfortunately, I have everybody at a distinct disadvantage at the moment. So it's going to take historians a while to really come to terms with the new findings and then to draw their own conclusions. And I'm pretty confident that at the end of the day, they will, you know, with the exception of a few little, you know, tweaks here and there, I think they will, uh, they will jump on board with this, uh, with the particular findings and this interpretation. Um, but like I said, I think what really the key is, is this is now kicks open the door, takes us to a completely different level. And now finally, 70 years later, we can start asking the real hard questions. And whether that be on the political level, whether that be on the national level, et cetera. So I think uh, I think that's where this is going to be headed. Well, I, I, uh, I have to admit, I was sort of I think in the same boat when I when I first saw the the television mm. series, uh, I, I, and I sort of saw the preview for it, and I thought, sort of oh, here like, we go, oh, that that's crazy, yep. you know, like this is going to be, and and you know, I watched the series in the and I thought, okay. Like there's enough there that I'm interested, and I'd love yeah. to read the book. And and now we have the opportunity to go through it in more detail. And I, I think the book certainly, um, certainly builds on the series. Well, I think you know it was kind of a funny way of doing it. I mean, just everything sort of came together at once. And usually you would do the book, and then there'd be a sim- you know cinematographic representation somewhere. But in this case, we almost did it backwards in the sense that the documentary, which really was the tip of the tip of the iceberg, um, broke the story. And then the book came in, and obviously, you know, now that you've gone through it, you can see the full story laid out, which is much deeper, much more nuanced, and much more intricate than we could actually reveal in the 66 minutes on television. So that's one thing I think some of the critics have jumped at. Um, they've been basing their interpretation or reviews of the book without necessarily reading the full book. I think what they've done is they've fallen back on the documentary, assuming that everything in the documentary is the complete story in the book, and it's nowhere near. Do, do you think one of the things I was wondering about was, in a way, like, I, I again, I was looking for other reviews mm-hmm. and other types of discussions, and I have to admit, part of me, in a way, was a little bit disappointed with the amount of conversation around it, that there's a few reviews in different places, yep. um, but most of the cases, they're fairly short. Uh, in other cases, you know, the the newspaper in question may have just run the, the press release from the publisher. Yes. And, and there's, there's not a lot of meat. And in a way, I thought, you know, I, I was starting to wonder, is that sort of a reflection of the sort of the state of Canadian history? I, I, I think sure. it is. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've been teaching history for about 20 years now professionally. And, you know, over the last 30 years, you could argue that history as a discipline has been in free fall. And also you add in the various cultural and technological elements or forces that are at play in society. And I mean, we're reducing everything to sound bites these days. So, you know, to, to actually sit down and think about something as intricate as the Dieppe operation, I think uh, sort of falls by the wayside, given the way society is starting to change into this soundbite mentality. So, you know what, I have to I have to admit that in some cases I have shared that disappointment that you have as well, because I was expecting to, you know, to have people really sink their teeth into this and to really appreciate the new information and where it would go. But then I realized that in many cases I'm reintroducing this topic to a whole new generation of Canadians and perhaps two generations of Canadians. And so that was something that was a big challenge for the book was to be able to to write it in such a way that retained its historical integrity, but of course at the same time made it extremely accessible. 
because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's such an important story for Canadians. I was, you know, I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, I didn't have to write for the 25 other Canadian military historians in the country who have a full knowledge about this. But with that said, I think part of it has to do with the evidence that's presented. It's very hard to argue with the new evidence that comes out. Um, this is not a question of, you know, gilding a lily or, you know, respitting an old event or an old interpretation. This is fresh, new, hard-hitting evidence that has never been seen or considered in the historical record before. So I'm not sure what the silence is at the moment. I'm not sure whether it's just a question of everything sort of overwhelming the historical community or whether they're just taking their time, like most historians do. And, uh, you know, we may be, we'll probably see more action on this sometime around the 72nd anniversary, which is coming up in uh, this August, because it usually takes about 10 months for historians to really sink their teeth into something. Well, I have to admit, too, uh, you know, this was one of those first books, too, that I've read in a long time where I, I really felt like I wanted the digital edition, because I felt like there's... Someday, we can't be that far away from a time where I can read this book and every footnote and endnote, I can just, like, tap it and I can read the full letter or that. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, that would be ideal. And you're right. We are getting there. I mean, I think one of the fascinating parts about the whole research journey for me was when I started this in 1995, um, the costs for continuing on in the way I did would have been prohibitive. Um, But now, with the advent of the Internet, with the advent of digital technology, I was able to basically do my research from my home in Montreal. I was able to find out what the British National Archives had, and then I was able to contract a researcher to go in and, with his digital camera, literally photograph every single page of a file that I wanted to see and then upload it to me. So within a couple of hours, I had 2,500 pages in my, you know, on my computer in Montreal. Now, that was something that was impossible to do in 1995, 1996. So as a result, as a historian, as an academic, we're on a precipice of something new here. The, the level, the breadth, the depth, and the scope of the material now that we can go through is incredible. And that's one of the reasons why I was able to go through 150,000 pages of material for this book was because the technology now permits it. So I I should probably ask, actually, the last thing I'll ask you, too, then, is you've spent so much time on this. So what what do you do next now? Like, what is the next story that you're going to Well, I guess, yeah, well, I guess Dieppe, I, Dieppe will always be there. Um, it's just one of those things that will probably never, ever be put to rest. And there'll be new stuff coming out. Um, so that's something that I'll always keep an eye on. But um, right now, we are moving off into new directions. Of course, I've been working with History Television for about 17 years, in addition to teaching, making documentaries for them. And um, we are now moving into development on what will be a Canadian Band of Brothers, an eight-part miniseries about one of our units during the Second World War and their saga. So, of course, not only will I be working on that from the television perspective, but also we are in negotiations for a companion book. So that will be the next big project that's coming out. In the interim, I have uh, three documentaries that are coming out on History Television this year. I have one called Camp X, 
and uh, two in the War Junk series, where we go back to the World War One battlefields and uh, tell the stories of the war junk or the artifacts that are still left in place. So those will be three that will be out on the, uh, in uh, the fall of the 2014 on History Television, and then we're moving into the Band of Brothers project. So uh, there's a lot on the go right now. Well, uh, maybe we will have to do another interview again uh, in the fall because I'd love to hear more about the other series. I'd be happy to. <laughs>